Says who? Who says you're going to make it through it this time? Just because you have made it through a situation nine out of nine times, who says tomorrow those odds are not going to change to nine out of ten times? That sort of faith is not based in reality. It's based in probabilities. In reality, this sort of faith is blind. It's based in a gut feeling, not truth. And the positive thinking psychology that we hear so often on our TVs, you hear blind faith come out in a different way. Right? If you just think positive thoughts enough, things are just going to get better your situation is going to start turning around. Your situation is all about your perspective. But I'm sorry, I don't care how positively you perceive your situation. If the doctor diagnoses that you have stage 4 cancer, your positive attitude is not going to change that. We see blind faith even in the church. Some of the charismatic uh, prosperity gospel sects of the church they argue that you can just believe things into existence. If you have enough faith, you can believe yourself into healing. Have enough faith, you can believe yourself into becoming rich. Have enough faith, you can live a powerful and successful life. But blind faith is not blind because you cannot see what you are believing. Blind faith is blind because there's no actual proof that what you're believing has any foundation in truth. Biblical faith is not blind because our hope is set in God who has proven himself over and over and over again. The key here is that we are placing our hope in and faith in what is actually promised. Our faith is not blind because the object of our faith has proven himself faithful, right? We sing, great is thy faithfulness. Because in order for us to have any sort of confidence, as we demonstrate faith in God, we need to know that the individual that we're believing in has proved himself trustworthy. Hebrews 11.11, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Notice, the foundation of her faith is God's faithfulness. This is essential. Remember that faith is a confidence in the things hoped for. But where does our confidence come from? Our confident faith comes not from ourselves, but from God. You know, we often think to think to ourselves, man, if I, if I just believe harder, I need to be more faithful. That, that's what I need as a Christian. I need to conjure up faithfulness in my own heart towards God. And when we begin to tell ourselves that, we begin to look to ourselves in order to find our source of faith. But faith is not something that we can produce in ourselves. Faith is foreign to us. Faith comes from Christ through his spirit whom he gives us. We're going to see in chapter 12. Christ is the source and the perfecter of our faith. 
You see, if you want to grow in your faith, you need to begin by asking God for more faith. Ask him for faith. Plead with him for for faith. Beg of him to implant within you a profound trust in his promises and a profound trust in his faithfulness. Your faith is ultimately dependent and contingent upon him, the one in whom you place your faith in. Sarah was commended because she counted God as faithful, not because she looked at herself in order to conjure up faithfulness in God. See, as we begin to grow in our understanding of who God is, our faith will then grow. So in order for us to grow in faith, we need to ask him, but we also need to study who God is. You want your faith to grow, you need to learn that God is trustworthy. You need to open up the pages of scripture and see the different promises that God has fulfilled for his people throughout the course of history. The larger your view of God is, the greater your faith will become. Because you will realize you're placing your faith in someone who is trustworthy. Verse 2, here we see the result of our faith. You see, our predecessors in the faith were commended by God for their faith. For it, or for by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their, com, uh, their commendation. Commendation. Uh, faith is and has always been the vehicle by which God deems his people righteous. Faith is and has always been the means by which God welcomes his people into the family of God. Look now at verses 5 and 6. By faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. You know, Enoch is this odd character in the book of Genesis who just kind of shows up and then disappears, like in a literal sense, right? Not just in the sense that he doesn't show up in the Bible anymore, but in a literal sense, he, he just disappears, Genesis says he's walking with God and then one day he was not because he was with God now. It's like as quick as he comes into the story, he leaves the story. And Hebrews looks at this this jaw-dropping passage and points out that Enoch was taken up by God because of his faith. And then he just reminds us, he just interjects, like, oh yeah, let me just interject something here. It's impossible to please God without faith, right? It's like this profound theological truth just kind of comes out of nowhere in Hebrews 11 here. Through faith, God grants his people a reward, an entrance into his presence, right? That is both simple and yet it is profound. We get to enter into the presence of God simply through faith, 
That's it. Not our merits, not anything we bring to the table. Belief is all it takes for God to pour out his free grace upon our shoulders. That's it. So simple and yet so profound. We get to enter into God's presence through faith. And so we need to persevere in our faith in order to enter into God's presence. So now, in chapter 11, he begins to give us example after example of individuals who have gone before us and have demonstrated faith in God. Look at verse 4. By faith, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So remember the story. Abel, this Cain and Abel, this is Adam and Eve's children, right? These are their sons. Abel has faith, presents to God a pleasing sacrifice. Cain does not have faith, presents to God an an unpleasing sacrifice. Cain sees Abel's faith, gets jealous, and kills him. But verse 4 ends this way. Through his faith, that is through Abel's faith, though he died, he still speaks. He was accepted into God's presence because of his faith. Skip down to verse 7. Noah. Noah became the heir of righteousness by faith. Remember, he constructed this massive boat before it had ever rained on the earth. It's kind of an odd story when you really think about it. It had never rained prior to Noah's time. God tells him, build this boat. Right? It takes faith in order to build this massive, massive boat when you've never even seen rain. You've never even seen rain pour down from the sky. And so he begins to construct this boat. And meanwhile, like you can only imagine, everyone around him is, is mocking him, thinking he lost his mind. However, Noah believed what God had told him. And by faith, Noah was deemed righteous and saved by God. Verses 8 through 12. We read about Abraham's example. Verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He left his homeland and traveled across the ancient world out of obedience to God's call. Verse 9, it's essentially saying that he went to this foreign land and he lived as a nomad with his entire family in tents. He traveled across the ancient world to live in a tent in the middle of nowhere. Left his family, left everything he knew to go do that. And he went in search for a promised land. But he ends up living as a nomad. Right, this idea... Let's just pause for a second. This idea of the promised land is actually essential to this passage, as we'll see. Here, it comes up, and we'll see it over and over again. When God called Abraham, God promised him that he would have descendants and that he would have a land. In that land, there would be prosperity. And this land promise was reiterated throughout the course of Israel's history, right? When Israel is entering into the land of Canaan. The promise is reiterated. Similarly, when David becomes the king, God comes to David and gives him another another promise. There's going to be peace and prosperity in this land. You will be here forever. 
in peace. And so as we go through this chapter, keep that in mind. So back to verse 13, notice what it says here. They all, that's Abraham and all of his offspring, they died in faith, not having received the things promised. In other words, Abraham believes God, he leaves with his family to a foreign land, and then he died there before ever receiving the promise. So he finally makes it there, but he realizes he, he never actually receives it as his own possession. There's foreigners there, there are enemies of God living in the land, there are his own enemies living in the land, and yet, even though he waited for years and years in order to receive God's promise, never received the promise of the land, he still remained faithful to God. So, now the book of Hebrews wants to just pause for a minute. Notice how he's been going by faith, this individual, by faith, this individual, by faith, Abel, by faith, Enoch, by faith, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, all of them, they live by faith. Now he takes a little pause in order to develop a, a key idea that impacts the rest of the passage. He takes a break from talking about these people who lived by faith in order to make an important offspring or, or uh, uh, argument here. So Abraham, Sarah, and their offspring, they all died in faith without having received the promise they were given. They did not dwell in the land that God had promised them in peace and in prosperity, and yet they still managed to live a life of faith in God. They died in faith. But how? How could they do that? How could they die in faith, still believing that God is faithful, even though they're dying without realizing that the promise is coming to fruition. Does that, does that make sense? Like, how can you die having been given a promise without seeing that promise come to fulfillment and yet remain faithful in that moment? How do you do that? Well, Hebrews wants to comment on that, he wants to, to bring that out. You see, they were actually living for a promise reserved for the people of God, not on earth, but in heaven. They understood that the ultimate promise that God was giving them was not a physical land in Canaan. But Abraham realized he was living for an eternal land in God's presence. Abraham realized this, is what Hebrews 11 is saying. This is important. It's important for our theological understanding. Like, what is the ultimate fulfillment of this promise that God made to Abraham? Especially when we think about the fact that this promise for this land is repeated over and over and over throughout the pages of Scripture. Well, ultimately this is not a, a plot of real estate in the Middle East. The fulfillment of this promise is the new creation. Abraham realized this. He realized that he was living for a better and a greater land than anything that this earth had to offer. So what should we make of this? Actually, a few things. First off, there are a lot of Christians, maybe you've interacted with some, who seem obsessed with the idea of Israel having a physical land in the Middle East. They spend a massive amount of time studying prophecies throughout the Bible about the physical land there in Canaan. 
and these types of people, they spend time, copious amounts of time, reading current events and the news about the Middle East because they have all of their sights set on this physical plot of land. For some reason, it seems like some of these people are, are more interested in, in this land in the Middle East than they are even interested in Christ. And so I just want to encourage you, don't make such a huge deal out of this promise that it, it causes you to get steered off course. Right? The final fulfillment of the promises made to Abraham do not find their end in the physical land of Canaan. They find their land in heaven. Verse 16, but as it is, they, that's Abraham and his offspring, they desired a better country. That is a heavenly one. In Abraham's mind, he's looking forward to heaven. And yet there are many Christians who spend all of their time focusing on this plot of real estate. But this isn't the only thing we can learn from this section of scripture. As we consider Abraham's faith, I think we can also learn from him. You see, when we live for a future hope that is secured for us in heaven, it will give us a completely new perspective in regards to this life. Like Abraham, we want to deny the benefits of this world if it means the, the advancement of Christ's kingdom. Right? We can be comforted when we go out and live as nomads in a foreign land when it is for the sake of Christ. We can be comforted when we decide to live a life of sacrifice for the kingdom of God. If you want to do that, you need to understand this. We are not living for this world. We are living for a future world, a future heavenly realm. You see, we need to come to understand that our existence is more than the comforts and the pleasures that we experience in this life. Life's more than making six figures and living in a nice neighborhood and a gated community. That's not what this life is about. You see, as children of God, if we want to go through with the discomforts of uprooting your family and moving to the other side of the country or the other side of the world, we need to grasp this. We need to grasp that the discomforts that we experience in that moment are worth it because we are not living for this realm. Just today, I was over in the, in the main uh, building of our church, walking past all of the pictures that we have of all of our missionaries in the church. And I was looking at one in particular, and I just stopped and paused and just stared for a moment because these individuals are serving in, the, in Chad. They have four children, and they're in the middle of the desert. Like their picture is actually taken in Chad. A lot of the people that you see on that wall, the pictures are taken like in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, right? It looks really nice. This family... This family took a picture for us and they're standing in the middle of the desert with their entire family. And I just, I, my gut, like I got this feeling in my gut just thinking, man, I don't know if I could do that. But in order for us to be willing to make decisions like that, we have to recognize it's not about this 
world. It's not about the comforts that we experience this side of eternity. We are living for our ultimate hope, which is not here. It's in the heavens with Christ. Let's keep going. Now in verses 17 through 31, we see more examples of faith. All right, the book of Hebrews comes out of this, this little parentheses, right? And now he goes back to the idea, by faith this person, by faith this person. So in verse 17, he goes back to Abraham. Abraham is commended in verse 17 when he was tested and he offered up his son Isaac. Offered him up as a sacrifice. Here Hebrews is making the case that Abraham obeyed God when he offered up Isaac, assuming as verse 17 says, that, that God would raise Isaac again from the dead. Kind of an interesting, an interesting word for us here. So Abraham's faith here is demonstrated by the fact that he trusted God more than he trusted what he saw with his own eyes. Right? He's looking at Isaac. And remember, part of the promise to Abraham was a land and an offspring. So Isaac, right in front of Abraham, is a fulfillment of the promise. It's one of the fulfillments of God's promise to him. And yet, he's willing to sacrifice his own son because he, he assumes, well, God has worked miraculously before. He gave us this child in the first place when my wife was 100 years old. He can work miraculously again. If he wants me to sacrifice my own son, I'm just assuming that he's going to raise my child from the dead. When you read Genesis, it is interesting. Hebrews is, is reading Genesis, Genesis 22, and, and reading into what Abraham says, right? Abraham's about to go up this mountain and offer his son, and he looks at his servant and he says, we're going to go make a sacrifice, and we, plural, both of us are going to come back, right? And so Hebrews is, is looking at that and saying, okay, it looks like Abraham's going up to sacrifice his son, but he must think God, God's going to raise, raise him from the dead. So, as a side note, you might be thinking that this is very strange for the book of Hebrews to mark a willingness to sacrifice your own son as a, as a form of faith. Right? How is that a demonstration of commendable faith, to be willing to sacrifice your son? Well, first off, I want to point out that for Abraham, this wasn't very shocking because a lot of the religions in the ancient Near East surrounding him, they would perform child sacrifices. So he was somewhat familiar with this idea. And he's thinking, you know what? I guess God wants me to do what these other religions are doing. And yet, God shows his kindness because when Abraham goes up to offer his son thinks, okay, I I don't want to do this, but I I guess God is calling me to do this. God interjects and he tells Abraham not to kill Isaac. Instead, God provides a sacrifice in the place of Isaac. Calls Abraham, take the ram and put the ram on the table to be offered. Take your son off of it. Right? Ultimately, God is showing Abraham, I do not function like the other 
religions in this area. I do not function like any of these other gods that you hear about. I'm not asking you to sacrifice your own son, right? He offers a ram pointing forward to the fact that God is saying, I will sacrifice my own son on your behalf. Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice that Hebrews 11, that that Genesis 22 is pointing forward to. Abraham was faithful, even in this moment. And at that moment, God prevented Abraham from behaving like the other religions of the land in order to demonstrate his own faithfulness. Verse 23, now we begin to read about Moses, another example of faith for us. Verse 23, by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Remember, Moses was an Israelite. There was an edict that went out from Pharaoh saying, no Israelite can have a child. So Abraham's parents, they have Moses and then they hide him. And then, turns out Moses ends up in Pharaoh's household. Verse 24, by faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Remember, Moses ended up being essentially an adopted child of Pharaoh's daughter. So he's living in a palace. In verse 25, we see that he chooses rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Remember, Moses was in a position of leadership and royalty in Pharaoh's household. And he suffered loss when he decided to forsake Egypt for the kingdom of God. He left the most luxurious and powerful palace serving the most powerful king in the world in order to go wander around in the desert. (laughs) He could have had it easy. He could have lived in Pharaoh's household and instead he decided to follow God's call for him to lead the Israelites back to the promised land. And lo and behold, he goes to lead them and he finds out pretty quickly none of them even want to go there. They didn't even want to be rescued. And so for decades, Moses is out in the middle of the wilderness wandering around with these people who don't want to inherit the the presence of God, and yet he's saying, we're going to the presence of God in the promised land. Constantly hearing their grumbling, constantly hearing their frustration, and yet Moses believed God. Next in verse 29, we read about the faith of the Israelites as they were standing on the edge of the Red Sea, waiting for God to act, right? You have an entire nation standing on the edge of the Red Sea. You have women, you have children, you have the elderly, and they're watching the strongest military of their day head straight for them. And in that moment, though not all of them, some of them though, demonstrated faith. And because of the few who had faith, God parted the Red Sea. The entire nation of Israel crossed the Red Sea, get to the other side. And as the Egyptians chase them through the middle of the sea, God decides to allow the waters to return to their place and Israel is rescued by faith. The Israelites conquered the city of Jericho 
read this in verse 30. I don't know how familiar you are with the story of Jericho, but think about how odd that would have been. You came to battle against God's enemies. And God tells you, get up and march around the city silently. It's going to take you an entire day. Don't say a word. And so they do. The next day, they wake up again, and God tells them to do it again. March around the city. Don't say a word. And then God says, do it again. Then again. Then again. Then again. And then finally, one more time, seven days, just marching around this, this city, not saying a word. And then to demonstrate just how bizarre things have gotten on the seventh day, after they march around the city, they all in unison yell as loud as they can. I mean, that is bizarre. That does not seem like a very successful strategy for taking down an enemy of God, an enemy of this land. But that was a mark of faith. They followed God. They followed him through the Red Sea. They had gotten here and they said, okay, God has proved himself faithful before. Let's, let's follow him and do this bizarre act of walking around the city of Jericho for days on end. Lo and behold, they yell, the city falls, the city crumbles, and they have victory over their enemy. Now, as we continue in verses 32 through 38, we get to the climax of this list. Notice how the tempo begins to ramp up. And he just begins to flood us with examples of those who have lived by faith. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets. Now at this point, I, I just have to point out that this passage is striking, especially because of the fact that he mentions these imperfect people. And some of these people are profoundly imperfect. Think about everyone we've talked about so far. Begin with Abel and Enoch. You know, not that they were perfect. Obviously, after the fall, there was no, no one who was perfect. Yet we don't really see anything about them in Genesis as to like their faults. And then with Noah, the next person brought up in, in Hebrews 11, there's a transition, right? We know Noah's faults. After the flood subsided, we find him naked in a cave, drunk on wine. Similarly, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, and Samuel, they were all men and women who were profoundly marked by imperfections. Abraham sold his wife out by, by pretending that she was his sister. He gave her to the king as a bribe in order to protect his own life. And then he did it a second time. <laughs> Once in Egypt, and then with King Abimelech. And then you have Sarah. Right, God promises Sarah, I'm going to give you a child. And she just laughs at God. She didn't believe God at first. You have Isaac, who followed his father's example and did the very same thing. Offered up his wife as a bride because he was afraid for his life. 
You have Jacob who stole Isaac's blessing from his brother. You have Moses who disobeyed God after wandering around in the desert for 40 years. And then he was prohibited from entering into the promised land. You have Gideon who did not believe God until he laid out these fleeces multiple times. He wouldn't wouldn't listen to God until God had proved himself to Gideon. It's a profound mark of unfaith, unbelief. Barak, he would not lead the people of God unless the prophetess Deborah led his way. You have Samson. Let me just say he was a womanizer, right? You have Jephthah, who made a stupid vow to sacrifice the first thing that came out of his home after he returned from battle. And it turns out the first thing to come out of his home was his daughter. And then he goes through with the stupid vow by killing his daughter. Stupidity upon stupidity. David, another womanizer and a murderer. Samuel, didn't parent his sons very well. Right? These are all imperfect people. And yet nothing about their disobedience is brought up in Hebrews chapter 11. Instead, they're held up as great examples of faith. Though they even failed to trust God in significant ways, they were demonstrations of people who possessed faith until the end. Or like Samson, only at the very end. Samuel served God, even though his children were mischievous. David repented after he murdered Uriah and stole Bathsheba. Samson turned back to God after living a life of sin. Barak and Gideon eventually went into battle on behalf of Israel. Moses repents and sought God's favor. These were not perfect men and women, but they did demonstrate faith in God especially when we consider the end of their lives. And this can be an encouragement for all of us when we begin to question the state of our own souls. And maybe you have fallen into some sort of significant sin. I would just encourage you, it is not too late. Turn to God. Believe in in Christ and receive salvation, receive entrance into the heavenly kingdom. Maybe you're more on like the legalistic end of the spectrum and you think that you're doomed because you made a a mistake today. Don't forget, these men and women were counted righteous because of their faith, regardless of their imperfection. You see, Faith in Christ until the end, of it, it, that's the goal. This isn't some sort of call towards perfection. So we can trust in Christ and receive God's perfection, and that gives us entrance into God's presence. So let's keep reading about these different individuals of faith. Notice in verses 33 through 35, we see that these individuals, through their faith, experience deliverance in a number of ways. Verse 33, these individuals, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched uh, the powers of fire, escaped the edge of the sword. They were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. I mean, these are profound miraculous 
outcomes for these people who demonstrated faith. Think of Daniel, placed in a lion's den, and yet lived to see another day. Think of his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, placed in a fiery furnace, and yet lived to see another day by faith. You know, many in the church, they would say this half of the list is a great demonstration of strong faith, right? Faith, especially strong faith, is evidenced when God begins to answer someone's prayers. You'll hear that a lot in the church. Now, I think that's true, right? To an extent, that's true. But at times, God, he he does, right? At times, God does answer our prayers by providing deliverance. However, we can't be tempted into thinking that a life of faith is always a life of deliverance, a life of the miraculous, an easy life. Notice how the passage continues. Here we see that strong faith is demonstrated sometimes when people continue to pray to God even though their, their prayers don't seem to be answered. Some were tortured. It's halfway through verse 35. Some refused to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. In, order, in other words, they, they gladly accepted the death penalty. Verse 36, others suffered mocking and flogging, even the chains of imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed by the sword, they, were, they went out in uh, skins of sheep and goats and destitute and afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. Look, these individuals did not experience deliverance. Faith in these individuals' lives is portrayed in the fact that they persevered even unto death, even unto persecution, even unto mocking, even unto hardship. And they were able to do so because they knew they were waiting a better homeland. And we find proof that they were waiting a better per- homeland in our final verses in our passage, verses 39 and 40. All of these, though commended through faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be perfect. These verses here find or provide a final summary of the passage. These individuals, they were commended for their faith, but not one of them received the promise that they were anticipating. Even the Israelites who conquered Jericho did not actually inherit the land where there was rest from all their enemies. Even David, as great of a king as he was, as prosperous as as Israel was under his rule, did not usher in a lasting peace in the land. There wasn't eternal prosperity under David. There wasn't eternal prosperity in Israel. Right? This promise that was made to Abraham and then repeated to Israel and then repeated again to David was an, a promise of everlasting peace in the land, prosperity. And not one of these individuals saw the fullness of God's promise fulfilled. That's because ultimately they were all awaiting the fulfillment of these promises, which would find their end in a better homeland. 
They were waiting for the moment when all of God's enemies would be put away with. And how is that promise fulfilled? Ultimately, it's fulfilled in the person of Christ. Notice what verse 40 says. Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Here we see that we have received as the church an element of the promise that those who went before us were waiting on. Right? They could not, the Israelites could not be made perfect apart from the grace that we have received in Christ. And so they were not able to enter into this perfect promised land in the presence of God. But we have experienced that. We've experienced the first part of this promise. Christ has come. This kingdom has been inaugurated. In a sense, Jesus has sparked the wick of this promise However, the full detonation of the promise will not happen until Christ returns and restores his kingdom on this earth with a new heavens and a new earth. You see, we are awaiting the promise of a new world. We look forward to the day when God will restore all things and establish a new kingdom. And so now, as people of faith who are anticipating that day, we can live lives of faith focused on that day rather than the current circumstances, focused on the blessings and the joy of the eternal day when we will enter into God's presence rather than the hardships that we face today. So as we are awaiting this day when Christ will return, let's turn our attention away from this world and its hindrances and its difficulties and its hardships and let's turn our attention to Christ because that is where we will find our everlasting peace and the hope of a better day that he will one day usher in. Let's pray. Christ, we do look forward to the day when you will return and a 